And as it is the first day of 2023, I thought it might be useful to us if we looked in a focused way at the very end of God's Word, Revelation chapter 21. And while your bulletin says verses 1 through 8, I am going to encourage us to read down into chapter 22, verse 5, Revelation 21, 1 to 22, 5. And um, the book of Revelation is a very precious book. Um, it's a book that many people have, have misunderstood because they've listened to people who don't understand what it's talking about. Uh, the first key to understanding this book is to understand that it was written in a specific context to a specific people in the first century. And so rather than asking, what does the book of Revelation have to say about America in the 21st century, we ought to be saying, what does the book of Revelation have to say to every Christian in every generation, with a special focus on those to whom it was given who were suffering severe persecution, among whom was the Apostle John, who was in prison for his ministry of the gospel on Patmos, when God opened the heavens and, and, and caught him up and showed him marvelous things and told him uh, everything that was to happen between the first and second coming generally. Um, another key to the book of Revelation is, is the number seven, the theological significance of the number seven. And, and there are seven sections in this book that run between the first and second coming of Christ and showing that all of human history is structured by the first and the second coming. And as you go deeper and deeper into those seven sections, you go closer and closer to the consummation. It's actually a very simple book when you understand that. And here in Revelation 21 and 22, we are at the very end of human history. Human history is linear. It is not cyclical. God purposed from all eternity to consummate all things at the end of time when Christ comes again. And so the Apostle John is here giving us this marvelous picture of the consummation and what is to come and what ought to be the ultimate hope of believers. And so we're looking this morning at Revelation 21.1, and we're going to read down to chapter 22, verse 5. Now the Apostle John bringing these visions to a close says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. Quite literally, it is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. 
The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. On the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod. 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its walls, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agat, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth cornelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each of the gates made a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb." By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day. There will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads, and no night, and night will be no more. They will need no lamp, no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God 
endures forever. Well, as we come into a new year, I am sure, if you were anything like me, that you come into it somewhat discouraged about your failures over this past year. Every year we have a propensity to come into a new year hoping that maybe this year I will make better progress than I did last year, thinking I was going to make better progress than I did the year before. One uh, satirical writer captured the essence of this when looking back over a past year and looking forward to a new. He says, my goal for 2023 is to accomplish the goals of 2022, which I should have done in 2021 because I made a promise in 2020 based on what I plan to do for 2019. I read that, I thought, that's brilliant and quite discouraging. <laughs> and yet, and yet, we are all, we are all in that same boat. There's something ingrained in us. We want to be better. We want to do better. We need new starts. We need new beginnings. We need newness. Uh, I was reading this week a sermon on this passage on the verse, Behold, I am making all things new by Charles Spurgeon, and Spurgeon tells this story in that sermon. He says, a brother said to me some time ago, Dear sir, I frequently grow very sleepy in my walk with God. I seem to lose the freshness of it, especially by about Saturday. I get I hardly know where. But he added, as for you, he said to Spurgeon, when I hear you, you seem to be alive and full and fresh of energy. Listen to this. Spurgeon said, ah, my dear brother, that is because you do not know much about me. Spurgeon will go on to say how quickly we lose our zeal, how unfresh we become, how little we delight in God. And this is what he says. He says, why? Listen carefully. He says it is because we get away from him who says, behold, I am making all things new. Why do we lose our zeal for the Lord? Why do we lose our freshness? Why do we fail to make the progress we want to? Why, why do we fail to become who we want to be? As Spurgeon said, it's because we have taken our eyes, we have gotten, taken our eyes off of, we have gotten away from the one who says, behold, I make all things new. Now, this is marvelous. The Bible ends telling us that there is, there is one who never fails to accomplish everything that he set out to accomplish. This is amazing. There has only been one man in all of human history who never failed to accomplish everything that he set out to accomplish. There is one, Revelation 21 and 22 is telling us, who gives us hope in the midst of our sins and failures and unfulfilled goals. There is one who sits on the throne of God, a man who sits on the throne of God, and he says, behold, I am making all things new. Now, it's interesting, the Bible ends as it began, and you know this, if, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that, that these are bookends. It is, it is protology and it is eschatology. It is the first things and the last things, and, and they come right back together. Where there was a newly created world in Genesis 1, there is going to be a new heavens and a new earth. Where God created man in his image and brought him a bride, there is going to be the wedding of the Lamb when the church comes down as the bride prepared for her husband where there was that garden that Adam was to expand the borders of and take it out and fill the earth with righteous image bearers worshiping God. There is going to be a, a heavenly paradise. But what we see at the end of Scripture is that it is going to be greater than it was at the beginning of Scripture. Augustine, the early church theologian, famously uh, called this the Felix Culpa, the blessed fall. 
Because God purposed that that newly created world in Genesis 1 would not last, but would become this dark world, this fallen world, this miserable world, this world under the dominion of Satan, under the sway of the evil one, this world that is full of misery and pain and hardship and death, that that world is preparing us for this world when Christ would come and overthrow that world and bring an end to it so that he might implement something better and more glorious for all of eternity. I want us, as we consider this this morning, to consider just three things. As we come to the end of Scripture, as we come into a new year, um, hoping that God will help us to set our minds and our hearts on these things. We see here first that the Apostle John tells us there's going to be a new marriage. And then secondly, there's going to be a new temple city. And then finally, there's going to be a new garden, a new marriage, a new temple city, and a new garden. Uh, garden. We'll notice, then I saw, John says, a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And, and when we read those words, our minds start to construct, what is this new heavens and this new earth going to be like? And, and there's only one thing, there's only one thing that Scripture tells us about the new heavens and the new earth, and that is what Peter tells us, in which righteousness dwells. John will allude to this twice in this section when he says nothing detestable, nothing unclean, nothing impure, no sexually immoral, no, no idolaters will enter this world. There will be no sin in this new heavens and this new earth. And yet, no sooner does John bring our minds to meditate on this, this renewed and regenerated world that Christ has secured, that notice he says in verse 2, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. Now, he's, he, he seems to have taken us from a new world to a, to a new city, but then he does something shocking. Notice that that city is not just a, a structure, it's a people. The, the new heavens and the new earth is inhabited by, by a new, new city that is formed by God's people, and that city is the bride, notice, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Um, marriage is one of the greatest gifts God has given us. It's a gift that some um, long for. Um, it is a gift that will never fulfill us, no matter how much we may wish it would in this life, because it was never meant to fulfill us the way that what it points to is meant to fulfill us. And all of human history is moving, is moving, is moving to the marriage of the Lamb. Jonathan Edwards, who I quoted earlier, this morning, said this, and you have to listen very carefully. He said, God created this world for his son. God created this world for his son that he might prepare a spouse or bride for him to bestow his love upon. Next time someone asks you, do you ever wonder why we're here? You can wow them with some Jonathan Edwards. God created the world for his son that he might get a bride for him 
so that the son might bestow his love on his bride. Edward says, so that the mutual joys between this bride and the heavenly bridegroom are the end of creation. That's why God created the world. When we come to the end of scripture, it's as if God is pulling back the, 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 the theater screen and he's saying, this is what it was all about. That, I, that my son might have a bride that he purchased with his blood out of every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. That, that he savingly is united to forever. That he is, in a sense, completed by and completes with himself. That's how the Apostle Paul, when he talks about marriage, he says that this is a great mystery. I'm speaking about Christ and the church. That just as Adam, when, when God brought Eve to him, and, and Adam cried out, and, and I imagine he, he shouted it out, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. The apostle says, this is a great mystery, but I'm speaking of Christ and the church. The two become one. Um, if you're a believer, you're already united to Jesus. Um, he is the great bridegroom of the souls of his people. Uh, John understood this so well. In fact, if you want to grow in your love for Christ, you read the apostle of love, who at the beginning of his gospel, um, remember he remarks that John the Baptist called Jesus the bridegroom. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. He, he is come to redeem a people for himself. Um, he has come to wed a people to himself. You know, it's interesting. We don't meditate on that enough. We need to meditate on that this year ahead. Every Lord's Day, when we gather together, we are preparing for the marriage of the Lamb. Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way, every Lord's Day, when believers are gathered together in worship, we are at the rehearsal for the wedding supper of the Lamb where we will be gathered up into his presence and caught up in his love for all eternity. Think about that. How do I grow in my love for Christ? I gather to worship him as the heavenly bridegroom, as the rehearsal of the marriage supper of the Lamb every Lord's Day preparing for that. That's amazing. Because as Spurgeon's friend said, by Saturday, we've lost our zeal, we're worn, we feel cold, and we need to be in that rehearsal, setting our minds on what is to come. You know, it's very interesting when John tells us this, he doesn't really tell us anything about this bride. Usually at a wedding, when I've officiated weddings and, and the music's playing and the bride comes in, all eyes are on the bride. Here, all eyes are on the lamb. They're all on the bridegroom. This is why Samuel Rutherford could write those great words that we love to sing. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace, not at the crown he gifteth, but on his pierced hands. The lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. The lamb is all the glory. Now, John moves very seamlessly 
from a picture of the new bride and the new marriage to the new temple city. And so much of chapter 21 is taken up with that. And um, you'll notice all those dimensions and all of those numbers. And, and what is John talking about? It's a, it's a perfect cube. I've, I've been to a lot of cities. I've never been to a city that was a perfect cube. This is not a literal city. If you grew up reading Schofield's notes, let me disabuse you of any idea of this being a literal city in Israel. This is a, this is a picture of the church. This is a picture of the redeemed church. Twelve apostles, twelve tribes, the, the redeemed out of the old covenant and the new covenant, all believers now gathered together as a new Jerusalem, as the city of God, as the place where God is going to dwell. And it's remarkable because it's, it's a temple and it's a city. There is no temple there. And yet God says, I am going to dwell with them. I am going to be among them. Listen, if, if we want to grow in grace, we've got to come to the place where we understand that our foremost identity is that we are citizens of a heavenly city, that we belong to a better temple that God is going to indwell his people for all of eternity. I've said this to you. I'm going to say it again. Charleston is wonderful. This is not it. Don't get too comfortable here. It's real easy to get too comfortable in this world. This is not our home. Paul said having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Here we have no continuing city. We seek the one to come. God is not ashamed to be called our God, though we are so sinful. He is not ashamed to be called our God because he has prepared a city for us. And all of that is hearkening back to the early chapters of Genesis. Remember when, when Adam was there, he was to develop, he was to be fruitful and multiply, he was to subdue the earth. And he was to turn the earth into that dwelling place. And yet, where Adam failed, God raised up Abraham, and, and he gave uh, it, it, Abraham's descendants that land, and he gave them a temple, and he gave them a city. And, and that was the city of the great king. But where, just as Adam had failed, Israel failed. And so another one came, and he said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. And after he conquered sin and Satan and death, the Lord Jesus secured in his death on the cross the, the, the new Jerusalem, the city that has come down, the, 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 the people of God for all of eternity inhabiting the new heavens and the new earth, the bride now to be that, that city dwelling place and the temple of God. Um, it is interesting, I'll just note this, that if you look at the dimensions of this city, and if you, if, you, um, if you researched what a stadia was, and you looked at the length and the breadth and the width of this, and you considered all the measurements, and, and this is drawn straight out of Ezekiel's vision in Ezekiel 40 to 48 of that new covenant temple, that, that new temple dwelling place of God. W one thing that you would learn is that it was roughly the size of the Hellenistic world of John's day. If, if they had tried to build this temple, it would have covered the entire Hellenistic world. 
And, and what's the point of that? G.K. Beale makes the point. Surprisingly, the size of the city is approximated, approximately the size of the Hellenistic world. This suggests that this temple city represents not merely the glorified saints of Israel in the Old Covenant, but the redeemed from every nation. Isn't that awesome? It's, it's a worldwide temple city that God is going to dwell in, made up of all believers through all time. Um, we should be in the habit, I want to encourage you to be in the habit of asking the Lord to indwell you here and now. That ought to be one of the, the foremost prayers we pray. Many times when I've sinned against the Lord and I go to confess my sin to him, I, I'll ask him to forgive me for grieving his spirit, for quenching his spirit, and I'll ask him to indwell me again. We ought to be praying that he indwells us because for all eternity, God is going to indwell his people. We're going to see him, John says, they will see his face. Isn't that marvelous? Listen, this is the same apostle who at the beginning of his gospel says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was prostan theon, face to face with God. And, and this is the same John that in 1 John 3 says, we do not know what we shall be, but we know that when we see him, we will see him as he is and we will be made like him. Here John says they will, they will see his face, John 22, 4. His name will be on their foreheads. For all eternity, God will perfectly inhabit the lives of his people. Uh, there's a story that R.C. Sproul uh, tells about uh, missing his father and having a dream of being in heaven and, and, and someone asking him where the Lord is and, and him saying he's everywhere. He's everywhere. Everywhere that you are, God will be there with his, with his blessed presence with his divine blessing, only blessing. There's no more sin. There's no more sorrow. Notice, he will wipe away every tear. Death shall be no more. There shall be no more mourning, no more crying. The older I get, the more I realize this world is so miserable. It is just full of death and sorrow and misery, crying, pain, hurt. That's all this world is. All of the gimmicks that we entertain ourselves with doesn't ch don't change that. One day, you are going to lose your spouse or your children, or children are going to lose their parents. It's going to happen. In that world where God is, there is nothing but life and blessing and rest and joy. I want us to finally consider that John sees that it's a new garden. It's the third picture of the same thing. The angel showed me the river of water of life. Remember in Eden, there was a river that went out and watered everything. And, and there was gold, and there were precious jewels. And this, this city with all those precious jewels now transforms into a garden. And, and a river of water of life goes out from the throne and from the Lamb through the midst of the street of the city. And, and on both sides of the river, by the way, this doesn't make any sense, on both sides of the river is the tree of life. How can one tree be on both sides? Because it's Christ. It's Christ. Francis Turretin, the old Genevan reformer, says this, Christ is the true tree of life. 
As mediator, he is the prince of life, giving life to this world and eternal life in heaven by glory. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the only tree because no one except Christ is the author of eternal life. No one except Christ is in the midst of paradise. No one except Christ is in the midst of paradise. I mentioned when we closed our sermon series on John that it's so wonderful that when Jesus is regenerated in his own resurrection on the third day, he's in a garden. He's the heavenly gardener. And remember, Mary is looking for him. Where have you where have you put him? She thinking he was the gardener. He is the gardener. He's the tree of life. He is, he is the one who stands in the midst of the paradise of God. He is the last Adam. He did what Adam failed to do. This world wouldn't be the miserable place that it is if Adam had done what God had asked him to do. And yet Christ has done what Adam failed to do and done it so much better. Now here's what's marvelous. You may be reading through this section, and you may say all of these things are comforting, but you know what's not comforting? What's not comforting is that in verse 8 of chapter 21, it says, as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, as for the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire. That is not comforting because I know that I am all of those things in different ways, either in my heart or my mind or my life. And I know that all of you are those things to some degree in your life. And it's not comforting that it says in verse 27 of chapter 21, nothing unclean will enter it because I know by nature I am unclean. And here's the glorious thing, though. It's when you recognize what you are and that you should have no place in that is that you go looking for the lamb. And who is a lamb for? Sinners. Who is the lamb slain for? Sinners. He is only the lamb because he was going to be sacrificed for sinners. And only those who are written in the lamb's book of life will enter in. I don't know if I've told you this. I was praying this morning a prayer I prayed 21 years ago in October when I was first converted. I, I, had, I had found myself at rock bottom in my life in depravity and wickedness, and I was alone. I knew the gospel. I didn't know I was praying. I remember clenching my fist as hard as I could, and I said, Lord Jesus, I need your blood, and he heard me, and he brought me to repentance. I, I looked for the lamb, that's, that's what we've got to look for. You know, as we come into a new year, we're going to have discouragements. We're going to have joys. We're going to have hardship. We might have prosperity, a mixture of all those things. And yet, whatever we do, we've got to be looking for the Lamb. We've got to be trusting in the Lamb. We've got, got to be following the Lamb because He has accomplished everything to secure everything that we've just heard to bring you to himself for all eternity. You know why we know so little about heaven and the afterlife and glory? Because there's one way that the Bible speaks about it, 
and then it means being with Jesus. Being in heaven means being with Jesus. Jesus said in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, he's talking about the cross. I go to prepare a place for you. He does that at the cross. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Let's have one resolution this year that we would long to be with Christ where he is, that we would listen intently and stay close to the one that says, behold, I am making all things new. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do come into this new year with uh, great desires that we might grow in grace, that we might know renewal, that we might know greater victory over those sins that so easily beset us. We come into this new year, Lord, desiring to be more joyful in worship, to be more zealous in our service, and zealous to do those things that are pleasing to you. And so, our God, we know that we need a, a vision of what we have heard this morning, that you would make us to see these things with the eyes of faith, that you would make us a people who are zealous to see the Lamb in his glory, to stay close to the one who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Oh God, would you give us greater desires for the Lord Jesus? Lord Jesus, we pray that you would give us greater manifestations of your love, that you would make us to know that you are um, preparing for us that new marriage, that you have secured for us that new temple city, and that you will shepherd us um, to the living fountains of water in that new garden. And so, Lord Jesus, would you do this in our souls? Make us to long for these things. We pray these things in your name. Amen.